0: Good morning church, as you are seated, if you would please grab your copy of God's word and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. And we're gonna be reading verses six through 19 this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's word, we will have um, the verses up behind me, you can follow along. And just as a reminder, as you're turning there, we will be uh, preaching this morning from the High Priestly Prayer, and this section will be taking place right in the middle of that prayer. All right, John 17, verse six. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world sanctify them in the truth your word is truth as you sent me into the world so I have sent them into the world and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth this is the word of the Lord
1: Everyone desires joy, true joy. But what if the joy in your life does not come from the place that you think it will? And what if the greatest joy that you experience in your days here on earth do not come in the circumstances that you imagine? Have you ever sat and really thought about that fact, that joy might not come from where you think it's going to come. Jesus is praying for those who follow him. In the first part of John 17, he prays to the Father seeking to be glorified and now he begins to pray for those who are his disciples, those who are following him. And the veil between us and the divine interaction is peeled back and we get to listen to what he prays for. And he prays for his followers and in this prayer he makes a remarkable statement. It's found in verse 13. He says, But I am going to you now and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus prays to his Father that you would have joy, but not just any type of joy. His joy that comes to its fulfillment or its completion in your life. That is a remarkable request and becomes an encouraging promise for those of you who believe in Jesus. And so follow the logic of the prayer with me as we see how Jesus prays for our joy. He begins this section in verses 6 through 10 and he prays regarding the fact that those who believe in him are actually those who belong to God. He moves from praying for glory for himself to protection for those who belong to God. And the reason why he prays for this type of protection is because you protect what belongs to you, don't you? And Jesus longs for his followers to be protected in a world where there are many threats before them. You know what these threats are. They're in many ways similar today as they have been for hundreds and hundreds of years. The threat of discouragement, of conflict, the threat of persecution, the threat of physical suffering, the threat that causes us to doubt God's goodness and God's godness when we experience difficulty in life. You can think of the spiritual threats of temptation to sin. The temptation or the threat of buying into the priorities of the world. The spiritual attack of the devil. All of these things designed to push you to believe that you will be most satisfied in this life when you adopt those priorities and in turn abandon the priorities of God himself. And so Jesus prays. He prays for those who follow him, who believe in him, because you protect what belongs to you. And he does say in the prayer that those who believe, in fact, do belong to him. The believers in him belonged to God, he says, and God has given them to Jesus. And In praying this, he lets us into the two sides of the equation of our salvation. He gives us the divine perspective of what happens in eternal salvation, and then he points to the human experience of what happens in eternal salvation. From the divine side, this is what you see as Jesus prays. Looking back in verse 2, He says, since you have given him authority, being Jesus over the flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Similarly, verse 6, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me. And they've kept your word. Verse 9, those whom you've given me. Verse 10, all yours are mine and mine are yours. And so you see from the divine side of our salvation, people belong to God, God gives them to Jesus. And actually you see a thread like that that's happening all throughout the gospel of John. If you back up all the way to John 6, John six forty four, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and i will raise him up on the last day in john 665 similarly this is why i told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father in john 847 whoever is of god hears the words of god and the reason why you do not hear he says to some of them is that you are not of god And so you begin to step back and you see in the divine interaction what's happening in the context of people's lives. Whether or not they realize it, God is initiating and drawing and actually giving people that belong to him to his son. Now we know, we know from our experience and we know from the scriptures that when somebody becomes a Christian, that happens when they believe something about Jesus, they believe upon him for their salvation, for the forgiveness of their sins. And yet here we also see that the God the Father is the one who gives or initiates this dynamic of belief. This is a reference to divine election that we see in other places in scripture. From the divine perspective, you might say that people belong to God before they believe in God. (laughs) Now I know that is going to cause some of you to bristle. God gives people to Jesus. It's going to cause some of us to go, oh, I don't know if I like the sound of that. It's gonna cause others us to ask a very important question. Doesn't this undermine the nature of your personal response or personal responsibility? Doesn't this undermine your experience in following Jesus? And yet we see in the prayer that Jesus also makes reference to the human side of your experience in salvation. The human response to this divine initiation. And we see it in verses six, seven, and eight. Look at verse six. Jesus manifests God's name to people. Verse six, they keep his word. Verse eight, they have received your words, Jesus says. They come to know the truth. And they believed that God was the one who sent Jesus. And so there's clearly divine activity, God giving people to Jesus. And here there's clearly human activity that's happening. People kept, they received, they know, and they believe. This is the human experience of receiving salvation from God. The most common objection that you hear to God's divine sovereignty as it relates to salvation is, well doesn't that just make people robots? And God doesn't make robots. And yet, when you look at the biblical language, there's no robotic language in the divine human interaction of saving faith. What you see is that God initiates some things and people respond to his initiation. Things like Jesus, verse 6, manifesting the name of God. That is to say that the Son of God represents to people the image and the character of God. That's what's in a name. In the Bible, a name communicates the essence of a person, the being of a person, the character of a person. God's name, Yahweh, I am. I am who I am. It points to his essence, to his self existence, to his sovereignty, to his power, to his holiness, to his justice, to his mercy, to his love. It points to his glory. He's the eternal God of the universe. And Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus manifests God's name or he makes clear or he shows people the character of God and who God is. Is And in response, people receive and they believe and they keep his word and they come to know the truth. And so you get a glimpse into God's sovereign work in election, drawing sinners, opening our eyes to our need for salvation. But this is not independent of the biblical account of the human experience for salvation. From God's perspective, from the eternal perspective, people belong before they believe. From your human experience and perspective, you believe. <laughs> and then you belong. And that's what it means to follow the Lord. And this is, points to the fact that Jesus praying for these people, praying for you who believe, shows his eternal value for you. He prays for you, not for the world generally, it says in verse nine, but he prays specifically for the ones that are most valuable to him, to the ones who God gave. And in this prayer, he helps us to understand how we interact with the world and he points us to the type of joy that we can ultimately have in it. Jesus points to the fact in the prayer that we are sent into a world that will hate us. You, Christian, sent into a world that will hate you. The reason why you might feel so much tension as you go through your life as a believer in Jesus is because this world is not your ultimate home. You see that throughout the Bible in a lot of different places, right? And and intuitively you begin to feel that as you go through your days. You have purpose here, but you don't ultimately belong or have a sense of belonging here. Purpose versus belonging. There's a difference. You belong to God and you belong with God, but you remain in the world that is described in the Gospel of John as darkness instead of light. And so Jesus prays specifically for his followers that we are in this world, but not of the world. Look at verse 11. He says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Verse 14. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. The world is a way of describing the masses that do not recognize God's rule or his ways And Christians are in the world. They're not of the world. And as Jesus prays for us we see the two temptations that emerge. You have probably experienced these temptations. We all have. Because we live in this ongoing tension of being in the world but not of the world. On one side we might have the temptation to just simply blend into the world. To function as people who are in the world and of the world. We all experience this temptation. There's immense pressure to conform to the world's standards, or you will be branded a radical or an outcast, or you might even be canceled by cancel culture. If you don't conform to the sexual ethics of the day, you'll be deemed a prude. If you don't accept the redefinition of gender or sexuality or marriage, you will be hated under the ironic label of being someone who hates if the church itself does not conform to the world to look more like the world even on sunday morning in what we do together to have higher production to have more lighthearted comedy to be more embracing of current cultural trends the church your church even might be deemed to be too serious or out of touch or not relevant, but Jesus reminds us that his followers are not of the world. And because they're not of the world, the world will hate them for not conforming. Because you are not of the world, the world will hate you for not conforming. And that leads to the second temptation because nobody wants to be hated. Nobody wants to live in constant tension in their life. Well, maybe we'll just isolate ourselves from the world. Maybe we won't actually be in the world. We will just self-segregate. And we'll do so on the premise of purity. We'll withdraw from the government. We'll withdraw from social groups. We'll withdraw from the schools. We'll only associate with Christians because we know that all of them are really nice and loving and kind. And they all see COVID the same way. <laughs> but Jesus said, I did not take them out of the world. Which indicates that we are still in the world with a place and a purpose and a function in the world, and herein lies the tension. In the world, not of the world, but the world hates you. That doesn't sound like very good news. Let's pause here and think for a moment about what this means for our expectations for life. Because if you are like most people, your expectation for life is an expectation that things will be increasingly getting better for you, that your career will advance, that yeah, you'll have some health bumps along the way, that's natural for everyone, that you might have some relational tension with the in-laws because, well, they're the in-laws, and, and on down the line, but certainly you're not going to have to live your life with a mass of people who hate you. Nobody has that expectation for life. And quite frankly, when you sign up to follow Jesus, most of us don't think that that is our expectation for life. God's on my side. He gives me the best promises ever. The most significant things in this life and the afterlife are now mine due to the promises of Jesus. Then why is it so hard? The New York Times profiled a 32-year-old man in Afghanistan named Yosef. He briefly escaped civil war in his home country by fleeing to Germany where many of his siblings live. And at that point, he had abandoned his Muslim faith, the faith of his family. Out of curiosity, he got to know Protestant missionaries. He attended church services that were held in Farsi, his native language, and he told the reporter from the Times that when I threw away my Islamic beliefs, I was living in a space of spiritual emptiness. During that time, I was studying different religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, and I was studying Islam as well. And I think I was impressed by the personality of Jesus himself. The fact that he came here to take all of our sins. I admired his character and his personality long before I was baptized. After being released from the refugee camp, he became a follower of Christ. He was soon deported, and back in Afghanistan, he has been hiding from family members who have vowed to kill him for renouncing Islam. A brother-in-law named Ibrahim even offered the New York Times reporter $20,000 to tell him where Yosef is hiding. He said, if I find him, once we are done with him, I will kill his three-year-old son because he is a bastard, Ibrahim said. Yosef's wife and his child are also in hiding in Pakistan. But as for Yosef, his faith in the Lord Jesus remains unshaken. And the article concludes, for Yosef, who has recently changed hiding places, the time passes slowly now with little company other than his Bible. He can hear the muezzin calling Muslims to prayer A reminder of danger's proximity and the paradox in which he now lives. He says, when I threw away my convictions, it was like an imaginary prison. But now, it is the other way around. My body is in prison, but my soul is free. Yosef, like all of the followers of Jesus in this world but not of this world finds that the world hates him. Asian Access is a Christian missionary group that works in South Asia and one of their church planting teams has been asking new Christians a series of questions when they're considering baptism. And this is a predominantly Hindu environment But over these past few decades, Christianity has continued to grow in popularity, especially among poor and tribal peoples. But the questions that the missionaries ask the followers of Christ are designed to help them have expectations about the world around them. It's designed to help them to be faithful upon following Jesus. It's designed to help them to count the cost of what they're really signing up for. They ask seven questions upon someone's profession of faith when they go public with their decision to follow Christ, are you willing to leave your home and lose the blessing of your father? Question number one. Are you willing to lose your job? Are you willing to go to the village and those who persecute you and actually forgive them and share the love of Christ with them? Are you willing to give an offering to the Lord? Are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith? Are you willing to go to prison? Are you willing to die for Jesus? And the seven questions serve as a sobering reminder for all Christians from every continent that there is a cost when you follow the Lord Jesus. These questions help Western Christians realize that the cost that we might have might not be as significant as others But there still is a cost even for those of us who grew up in a relatively Christian culture a culture that's now changing. It's not inconceivable that some of these questions will be asked of our grandchildren or their children someday. It sounds a lot like people who are in the world but not of the world. And yet the world hates them. And so what are your expectations for the days going forward. How do you process the tension and the difficulty and the social pressure that you receive for being a follower of Jesus? When you're ridiculed at school, it's because the world hates those who follow Jesus. When the parents of your kid's sports team look at you sideways because you're not going to make it to the Sunday game, you aren't surprised. When the university you work at tries to put a gag order on you uh, with regard to talking about certain moral issues, you know what's happening. And the list goes on. Fill in the blank in your job, in your neighborhood, in your social circle. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. Jesus acknowledges the reality to his father And yet, at the very same time, he prays in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Christians are in the world. They're not of the world. The world hates them. And at the very same time, we're intentionally sent with the purpose of the Lord Jesus himself. And that, my friends, leads to the good news of what Jesus prays for and the promises that are for you. We see that Jesus prays in this prayer that God will keep you, and that God will give you joy. That in the midst of all of the difficulty of a world that hates you, God will keep you, and God will give you joy. He prays that God will keep you, and there are four ways in which he prays this. Jesus prays that God will keep you in his name, verse 11. Keep you from the evil one, verse 14. That he will sanctify you, or keep you in the truth, verse 17. And that he will sanctify you in the word, verses 14 and 17. Now that's a fantastic and really hopeful promise. Because no matter how difficult the world around you seems to be, Jesus tells the Father that he has been the one protecting his disciples to this point and now he asks God, the creator, the sovereign of all the universe to continue protecting the Father and keeping them in his name. God's name. What is a name? We said it's communicating his essential being, his essence, his character. That God would keep Christians in his glory. It's hard to know if Jesus means precisely that God would keep us by the power of his name or if God would keep us in conformity with his name or conformity with his character. But I would assume that it's probably both. Proverbs 18.10 says that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. So when the followers of Jesus are kept in the strong tower, the name of the Lord, this means that they're naturally kept from the evil one who would seek to undo you. That God himself protects you and guides you and nourishes you even when the outlook around you is really dim. You are secure. You, you are secure in the name of God. You are protected in the midst of difficulty. God is keeping even you, no matter what type of pain you might have. And He keeps us according to His character and His power and His being and he sanctifies us, it says, in verses 17 and 19, by his word, that God keeps you, he makes you holy, and he sets you apart by his word. I don't know if you realize this, you read the prayer, or it was read out loud today, that there's a lot to do with the world, and there's a lot to do with the word in this prayer, that the word, God's word is what Jesus gives to us, verse 8 and 14, that God's word is what we receive, verse 8, that it is what we obey, verse 6, that it is God's word that he uses to sanctify us, verses 17 and 19. And to sanctify someone has two meanings. To sanctify means to make someone holy, that God Engages you in the process of changing your life and making you more holy and he does so by his word and to sanctify someone also means that you set them apart for a particular purpose that God sets you apart to navigate a world that hates you and he does so by his word. If you have ever thought to yourself or wondered why our church seems so simplistic in its outlook and why it seems like everywhere you turn, we saturate ministry with Bible teaching, with little kids, with middle school kids, with senior high kids, with college students, with adult growth groups, with Sunday morning classes, why we spend week in and week out every single week of the year spending time together for 40 minutes on Sunday morning, hearing an exposition from the Bible that is careful in its approach, that's not 15 minutes or 20 minutes, that doesn't just give you spiritual inspiration or a lot of inspiring stories. This is why. This is why we do what we do because God calls people to himself through his word. That God makes them prepared for a world that hates them through his word. That God makes you holy through his word. That God sets you apart for mission and he does it through his word. The ordinary reception of God's word is the means by which he chooses to change your life, to grow you, to shape you, to prepare you, to give you hope and to give you eternity. And so Jesus prays, keep them in your name and sanctify them by your word. And here's the thing. Not only does does God work in you by his word, in the midst of a difficult world. But Jesus prays in verse 13 that you can have joy even in a world that hates you. I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Joy, not any joy My joy, joy from heaven that is brought to its full in your life, in the context of a world that hates you. There was a New York Times article published a few years ago called, Are We Living in a Post-Happiness World? The writer says, joy, it seems, is everywhere these days. Joy is used to sell boxes at Ikea. It's included in ads for drinks at McDonald's, and there are t-shirts that tout joy as an act of resistance. There's a Chasing Joy podcast, and a number of books are being published each year devoted to joyful living, joyful marriage, joyful productivity, but if joy is everywhere, Why does happiness feel so elusive? Politics in America have divided us into two camps. She writes angry and angrier. Our world is threatened by climate change and the booming United States economy is showing signs of fatigue, she says. Douglas Abrams, the author of The Book of Joy, said in an age of despair, choosing joy is a revolutionary act. So are we living in a post-happiness world? According to the World Happiness Report, we might be. Happiness in the United States is declining. Americans said they were less content in 2018 than the year earlier. Who knows what they would say after 2020? Ranking ahead of the United States was Australia and Canada. Canada, of all places. The 24 hours news cycle, combined with the onslaught of natural disasters, social upheaval, political strife, has left Americans exhausted. But do you remember the question that we asked at the beginning of our time together? What if your joy in this life does not come from where you would expect it to come from? What if true lasting joy is not birthed out of the circumstances that you assume they would be birthed out of? What if your joy doesn't actually come from your family? What if it doesn't come from spending time with your granddaughter? What if it doesn't come from material comfort or the next car that you buy? What if it doesn't come from your next form of entertainment or relaxation or the vacation that you're longing to take now that travel is open? Jesus prays for joy from heaven that will complete in you or be fulfilled in you. In the most difficult of circumstances, joy that lasts, joy that sees through ridicule, joy that endures as you persevere in a place in which you don't belong, joy that is rooted in the fact that you belong to God, that you have hope for a future, but you're on a mission for the time being, even though it's difficult. The joy of the Lord himself that is fulfilled in you. In this part of the prayer, you see that the followers of Jesus are sent into a world that hates you. But God will keep you and sanctify you and give you joy. The followers of Jesus are sent into a world that hates you. But God will keep you and sanctify you and give you joy. What does this joy look like and how does it play out? I close this morning with just two short stories. The first is from a woman in our congregation, a woman that many of you know. She exudes joy. She's about this tall, and her name is Susan Rubenstraw. Susan is the type of person that when you meet her and you get to know her a little bit, I've had, I've actually had many of you ask me, is she for real? Like, is she really that happy? Does she really have that much joy? And it takes you about 15, 20 minutes to realize, nope, she's definitely for real. One of the most joyful people I know. This past week, Susan was diagnosed with brain cancer. And as members on our team talked to her about her diagnosis, what she said was significant. But the tone in which she said it, said it all. Because she exuded joy in the most difficult struggle of her entire life. How does that happen? How can that happen in your life when you have the most difficult struggle of your life ahead of you? I'll tell you how it happens. God keeps you in his name he sanctifies you by his word. And he gives you the joy of the Son that is fulfilled in you. And that happens over the course of time. And that happens over the course of God's ongoing and ordinary process of changing your life. And so when you reach the day of your greatest struggle, you too can have joy. In 2008, a remarkable documentary came out entitled Man on a Wire, and it examines the most amazing exploits of a tightrope walker named Philippe, Philippe Petit. In 1974, Felipe had a secret plan to extend a steel wire between the two towers of the World Trade Center in New York City, and at the time the towers themselves were still under construction. And after much planning and practice, the day arrived. Petit and his fellow conspirators snuck to the top of the respective buildings. They shot a wire across the quarter-mile chasm that separated them and Petit went to work. When it was all said and done, Petit was on the wire for 45 minutes, thousands of people had gathered below to watch him. On each end of the wire police waited to arrest him when he got off and Petit made eight passes before finally coming in and to this day he insists that the stunt wasn't for publicity or even to see if he could do it. He said that the path is as important as the result. He now lives in New York's Catskill Mountains. A wire is stretched across his yard. He still practices several hours a day. And Petit told that same Newsweek reporter that it never occurred to him to use a safety net when walking the wire. He added, I never fall. But yes, I have landed on the earth many, many times. It's that last part of the quote that's interesting. I never fall, but I have landed on the earth many, many times. It sounds a lot like the description of a Christian who experiences trouble in the world. It sounds a lot like Christians who live in a world that hates them. But I'm reminded of Psalm 91, which says, if you make The Most High, your dwelling, even the Lord, who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. In some ways, the psalmist is saying, I never fall. But yes, I've landed on the earth many, many times. Christian, I hope you're encouraged today because you're sent into a world that hates you, but God will keep you. You're sent into a world of great difficulty with a particular purpose, but you belong to God, and God will keep you, and He will even give you joy in this life. May that be your experience as you rely upon him. May he bring the joy of the sun to its fulfillment in your heart and your mind as you face difficulty. When times are especially hard, remember who the one who keeps you really is. The world might hate you, but God himself is the one who keeps you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for letting us into the interaction between you and your son. We thank you for showing us the divine aspects of salvation that we cannot see fully, but you give us this instruction for our encouragement. We thank you, Father, for the promises of being in the world and not of the world and helping to set or calibrate our expectations for the days of our life. And we thank you for the good news that through the Lord Jesus himself, we can have joy. Give us joy all the more we ask. Foster it in our hearts in our minds as you increase our trust and our knowledge of you. God, give us joy in the good times and joy in the difficult times. And may we be a testament to your goodness as we walk through our days, we pray. For the sake of your glory, amen.